The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we're back from our Thanksgiving break with a special focus on Cuba as a milestone passes for a U.S. prisoner there. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Colombian government and representatives of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, will resume peace talks next week. Colombia stopped peace talks when the FARC seized high-ranking General Rubén Darío Alzate in November. After weeks of negotiations, the rebels released the general earlier this week. Cuban and Norwegian officials brokering the peace process said the next round of peace talks will begin next week. The president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, shows optimism about what the talks will yield. Yo celebro que en la mesa de La Habana se ha puesto de acuerdo para reanudar. I celebrate that we have agreed to continue discussions about how to de-escalate this conflict. The Colombian government and FARC have been discussing peace for more than two years. Colombia's civil war has raged for half a century. Davide Vasquez won Uruguay's presidential election comfortably this week. Vasquez won with almost 57% of the vote against Luis Lacalle Pau. The election drew international attention with Lacalle's plan to undo some of the country's legislation of marijuana. With Vasquez of the broad front in office, the left retained power in Uruguay. Vasquez is a 74-year-old oncologist. This will be his second term. Vasquez was president between 2005 and 2010. Argentine soccer player Franco Nieto died at 33 after being attacked by a mob. Nieto was going to his car with his wife and one-month-old daughter when he was surrounded by a group of hooligans. Nieto was struck in the head. Doctors tried to save him, but he died after an unsuccessful operation. Argentine authorities detained three men in connection with the attack. Fifteen people have died this year in soccer-related violence in Argentina. Mexico loses one of its greatest writers, Vicente Leñero, at age 81. Leñero wrote books, plays, and film scripts. One of Leñero's most famous works is The Bricklayers, which portrays 1970s Mexican society through the lives of construction workers. The film version of The Bricklayers won a silver bear at the Berlin Film Festival. Leñero wrote the script for that film and 17 others during his life. He wrote the script for The Crime of Father Amaro, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 2002. Leñero was also a co-founder of Proceso magazine. Leñero remained a journalist until his death of lung cancer. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Canada. Canada came in third this week, behind our listening audiences in the U.S. and Brazil. So we thank our growing Canadian audience for their support. And now, back to our special focus on Cuba. This week marked five years since the incarceration of Alan Gross, a U.S. contractor 
convicted of setting up equipment to establish internet links on the island. Cuban authorities have characterized Gross's work with the Cuban Jewish community and its technology needs as a form of espionage. The U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, sent Gross to Cuba to install internet connection devices as part of the agency's democracy promotion programs. U.S. and Cuban authorities confirm Gross's health has deteriorated and he has lost most of his teeth as his health fails. We talked to Phil Peters about the Gross case. Peters is the president of the Cuba Research Center. We reached him via Skype in Alexandria, Virginia. Well, it's a sad case. I mean, that guy went to Cuba on a contract from the U.S. government. Um, He's a businessman who has been involved in consulting and international development services for many years. He said that he worked in about 60 countries. But boy, he didn't do his homework before he went to Cuba. Uh, He went there and he was installing satellite internet systems that created these Wi-Fi hotspots at the same time that other U.S. grantees were doing the same thing. Um, And uh, it was all part of a program under the U.S. government that was funded during the Bush administration. But in the case of Mr. Gross, he carried out during the first year of President Obama's term uh, a program designed to bring the Cuban government down and to, and to end the socialist government there and replace it with something else, a democracy program it was called. Uh, I think he was naive, to say the least, in thinking that that uh, he wouldn't be watched. And in fact, in, in the reports that have come out, that he, the reports that he filed back home to USAID and to his employer, uh, he knew that he was being watched and he knew that it was, you know, very risky business, to quote him directly. So... Uh, there he is uh, in jail. It, it certainly is an obstacle because the, the Obama administration has said that unless that, that until that issue is resolved and he gets out, uh, the, the, there's a lot of steps forward in, in U.S.-Cuba relations that could be taken that are not going to be taken. I think President Obama really needs to uh, address the issue head on. Un- unfortunately, uh, it's this kind of a bizarre situation where USAID has been, you know, through Mr. Gross and a few other operations, engaging in covert activity. They don't like that term, but I don't know what else you call it when you send somebody into a country to do things that uh, that the government of the country doesn't want done, and you're trying to do it without the government noticing or catching on. Uh, that's that's covert operations in anybody else's book. Uh, but regardless of what you call it, when you when you do that kind of activity, when the when the when the operatives get caught, you've got to negotiate to get them out. There's a long history between the United States and Cuba where occasionally we've caught some of their guys and they've caught some of our guys, and we've exchanged them. It goes all the way back to the Bay of Pigs when we sponsored that amphibious invasion, and and then in in uh, 1962. The United States paid uh, $52 million in, in terms of, uh, by, by, by sending $52 million worth of food and medicine to Cuba, we achieved the release of about 1,000 prisoners of war. Um, you know, it's distasteful. It's not, it's not pretty. But if, if, if uh, the U.S. government chooses to get 
to engage in operations of that type and, and things go wrong, things are messy and you have to you have to clean them up and sort of the cost of doing business is perhaps to do something distasteful. In the case of Mr. Gross, we've got three of their Cuban prisoners, three Cuban prisoners uh, in our jails, intelligence operatives that were caught some time ago. They've all served more than 16 years in prison. And uh, I think President Obama is going to have to bite the bullet and and negotiate and and frankly live up to his responsibility to get this poor guy out because regardless of what you think of the program or Mr. Gross's uh, acumen in, in, in carrying out that operation, he's still our guy. And he was sent by the U.S. government and we have a responsibility to get him out. We have talked on this program before about that and about the potential swap for those spies that uh, have been called the Cuban Five, I guess you could call them the Cuban Three now, but they're still referred to as the Five. And your comments also bring up um, the mental state of Alan Gross and that um, some have talked about whether he he's lost a lot of weight in, in prison and that he's talked about uh, suicide openly. This this underlines the the need for movement on this case, doesn't it? Uh, yes, I think it does. I think it does. I think that the guy is uh, well. L- let me say, Rick, I- I've never visited him. I know I know people who have, and I've talked to people who have visited him, but I haven't personally met the man. Uh, but it doesn't take a lot of, a lot of imagination to 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 think of how he must feel. And to think of how it, it feels for him to see now five years go by and, and to know that the United States government is not sitting down with the Cubans and saying, okay, what, what can we do here? The Cubans have said that they're willing to resolve the situation and to, to come up with an arrangement that's, uh, that addresses both sides' prisoners on a reciprocal and humanitarian basis. So, you know, what does that mean? You don't know what that means until you sit down and talk. I think we have a responsibility to sit down and talk. And if we have to bite the bullet and do some things that we'd perhaps rather not do in the interest of getting our guy out of jail, I think we should do it. I think we owe it to him. He's, um, interestingly, he, he, for some months now, uh, his family has talked about how he's, he's uh, uh, in bad spirits and he has, for some months now, refused to receive visitors from the U.S. diplomatic mission in Havana uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the theory that if they're, not, if they're not doing anything for him, he doesn't want to talk to them. So he receives private visitors who, well, visitors, uh, for example, he just saw two senators who were visiting Cuba. Um, he, um, you know, sees other people from the Congress and he sees private citizens that go, but he won't, he won't see our diplomats anymore. He's a little angry. What else do you think it's important for us to know about the gross case and the state of Cuban-U.S. relations? Well, I think um, that's a good question. You know, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to think that uh, step step back and, and and look at what was going on there. The United States government under President Bush. Um, had a very, very uh, thorough and, and pretty muscular program to try to 
uh, dislodged the Cuban government. And uh, it involved all kinds of things. You know, I don't think it was particularly well designed. Obviously, it didn't work. I mean, it was based in many ways on ideas that, that has been, have been behind our policy for a long time, that, that uh, we, if we squeeze the Cuban government's finances harder, it's going to pressure the Cuban people into revolt or pressure the Cuban government into some kind of capitulation. Uh, well, wrong country. Neither one of those effects takes place. Um, or if we support the right people in the opposition, that'll help them to, 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 to create a following and, and have an impact. Or in the case of Mr. Gross, that if, if, if we s set up these communication systems, that's somehow going to help the cause. Um, I mean, set aside whatever, you know, whether you like or dislike the, um, the, the ideas behind President Bush's policy and his whole program, the fact is the U.S. government was trying to expand Internet access. And if you step back, it's really kind of ridiculous to think that the way the United States would do that in this neighboring country of 11 million people that doesn't threaten us at all, and where all the security issues that used to be real and live and pretty serious, the, the, the ties to the Soviet Union, the military ties to the Soviet Union, the the support for guerrillas in Latin America, the, the deployment of troops and all kinds of military action throughout Africa. All those things are gone. There's no security issue with regard to Cuba. So here the mighty United States, in order to spread, in, to spread Internet access and communication in Cuba, we send this guy in to do these clandestine satellite Internet systems, while at the same time we have an embargo that prevents... American companies that would sell computers and would install internet and improve the telecommunication system and all that, all the, the normal ways that a country develops uh, telecommunications capability and, and internet penetration, uh, we, prevent, we pro prohibit all of that. It's, it is absolutely crazy. Now, if we release, if we end the prohibitions, that's not a guarantee that Cuba would do business with the American companies. But it's a little ridiculous that after 50 years, we still don't try. And so it's a, I think that an important lesson about the Alan Gross case is not just the issue that we sent the man in there and, and he's, it's, it's our responsibility to get him out because he was there on our business. Um, but really to step back and look at the policy and, 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 and realize just how crazy it is and, and to realize how much more we could achieve if we would just treat Cuba the way we treat other countries – with which we have a pretty fundamental disagreement in terms of the former government and the politics that they practice, but where we don't, I'm thinking of China, thinking of Vietnam and many other repressive governments, where we don't bar Americans from, from trading and investing as they see fit. I think that's an important lesson. Thanks so much, Phil Peters, president of the Cuba Research Center, joining us via Skype from Alexandria, Virginia. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks. It was a pleasure talking with you. Coming up, the history of secret negotiations between the U.S. and Cuba. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. 
Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. The Alan Gross case and poor relations between the U.S. and Cuba have us resuming our conversation with Bill Leogrand. Leogrand is the co-author of the new book, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. We spoke with him via Skype from Washington, D.C. Here are excerpts from our discussion. The headline is that every president since Eisenhower has had some cause to negotiate with the Cuban government, including um, hardline Republicans like Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush. Um, Despite 50 years of hostility, uh, there are some issues, and presidents have recognized that there are some issues that just can't be solved without sitting down and talking with Cuba about them. And one of the things that we discovered in writing this book is that those discussions have very often led to important agreements that did solve problems. Uh, Migration is, is an important one that we were talking about earlier. In 1994 and 1995, we signed migration agreements with Cuba, which regularized the flow of emigrants out of Cuba into the United States and is the principal reason we haven't had another large migration crisis. Those would be signed under the Clinton administration. Yes, that's right. Um, They were uh, negotiated secretly, uh, both of them. Um, during first during the rafters crisis and then in the immediate aftermath of it in uh, negotiating the first agreement uh, President Clinton used uh, the president of Mexico Carlos Salinas as an intermediary with Fidel Castro and Castro used uh, former president Jimmy Carter as an intermediary carrying a message carrying messages to President Clinton President Carter has been an influence on the island and that, there's a good example of that. Do you, do you talk about him very much in your book? The, the chapter on President Carter is actually one of the longer chapters in the book because he was the first president to explicitly decide he wanted to, to normalize relations with Cuba. Within weeks of inauguration, he signed a presidential executive order um, directing the, the foreign policy bureaucracy to begin a process of negotiations leading to normalization. Now that process stalled partly because of the opposition of his national security advisor, Spignev Brzezinski, um, but also because the Cubans placed a higher priority on their solidarity with allies in Africa, um, in Angola and Ethiopia. Uh, But even after the process stalled because of Cuba's involvement in Africa, Secret negotiations went on through 1978 and 1979 uh, with the aim of trying to restart uh, the normalization process. And there were efforts on on both sides to get that process started again. And then finally, of course, there were secret negotiations trying to end the Mariel boatlift crisis. I'm wondering how you came about uh, the information about these secret negotiations. Uh, human sources? Uh, some sort of uh, release from secret files? So we used a combination of declassified U.S. government documents, of which we were able to get literally hundreds uh, from Eisenhower period onward, um, and interviews with both U.S. diplomats and Cuban diplomats 
who sat across the table from one another. Um, we were able to get just a small handful of Cuban declassified documents because Cuba doesn't actually have a declassification system. There isn't any Freedom of Information Act in Cuba that you can request documents, and the government releases very few. I'm wondering about the current administration. Uh, there was some thought that uh, President Obama might be someone who could normalize those relations. Uh, there have been changes in the U.S.-Cuban relationship, but they seem still frozen um, somewhat by U.S. domestic politics. I'm, I'm wondering what you write about Obama and, and what your thoughts are about the Obama administration in regard to its relations with Havana. We do have a chapter on uh, the Obama administration that carries it up to just about a year ago. Um, you know, the president came to office saying that the policy toward Cuba of the past 50 years was a failure and needed to change. Uh, he talked about a new beginning in relations with Cuba. And he actually did some things early in his administration that signaled a willingness to, uh, to engage with Cuba rather than uh, the policy of, of George Bush, of regime change and isolation. But uh, it stalled pretty quickly, uh, partly because the uh, regime change programs run through USAID of trying to destabilize the Cuban government continued under President Obama. He didn't turn them off. And that led to the arrest in Cuba of an AID contractor, Alan Gross, in December 2009, and Gross's arrest then has been an obstacle toward bilateral progress ever since. As far as you know, no secret negotiations going on there for uh, Alan Gross's release? Well, you know there have been a number of uh, envoys who have carried messages uh, back and forth trying to uh, get a process going that might lead to Alan Gross's release. Uh, former Governor Bill Richardson uh, went to Cuba uh, a couple of times, and the, the last time he went, carried a list of of possible things the United States might do if Alan Gross were released. Uh, President Carter uh, went down, uh, hopeful that he might be able to do something to win Alan Gross's release. But uh, so far, it does not appear that the diplomats on the two sides have really sat down and opened a serious dialogue about how to solve this problem. The U.S. position has been that Alan Gross didn't do anything wrong and therefore ought to be released unilaterally. The Cuban position is that he broke Cuban law, and while they're willing to consider a humanitarian release, they have uh, people in jail in the United States who they think deserve humanitarian release as well. And while they don't uh, insist on an exchange, they do see a parallelism, and they're not willing to talk about one case without talking about the other. You're referencing there the uh, remaining three members of the group called the Cuban Five. That's right. That's right. Five Cuban spies uh, arrested in Miami in the 1990s and sentenced to long prison terms for a variety of offensive offenses. Two of them have served their sentence and been released and gone back to Cuba, but the other three are still in prison and, and won't be released for a very long time. They're treated as heroes in Cuba, spies here in the U.S., and, and that, of course, reflects this great divide between the countries. You mentioned 
the historic part of your book, um, Nixon, Reagan, others who secretly negotiated with the Cubans, any particular stories that would surprise people from those right-wing Republican presidents? Well, Ronald Reagan actually signed as many or more agreements with Cuba than any of the other presidents. Um, We had two migration agreements with Cuba during the Reagan administration, uh, one in 1984, uh, which was then suspended because of the uh, broadcasting of Radio Marti. It was renegotiated in uh, 1987. And then there was a, a long diplomatic process uh, lasting the entire Reagan administration that led finally to the withdrawal of Cuban troops from Angola in exchange for South Africa's withdrawal from Namibia and Namibian independence. And so um, I'm wondering, these um, immigration agreements that the Reagan administration came to, those were a result of, um, of the need to, to come to some new terms after Marielle? Yes, exactly. It was, the, it was the, um, the fact that there were several thousand Cubans in the United States who had come on the Mariel boat lift, but who were uh, designated as excludable because they uh, had engaged in some kind of violent crime or uh, um, some other offense that made them ineligible to stay in the United States. And the United States wanted Cuba to take them back. Cuba did not want to take them back. But Cuba also had a number of political prisoners that had been released during the Carter administration as a result of secret negotiations, but had not yet come to the United States. The Cubans wanted the political prisoners to leave. So there was a negotiation in which that was the trade-off. The Cubans agreed to take back the excludables, and the United States agreed to take the political prisoners. I'm wondering if there's any other special nuggets in your book that we haven't discussed that might encourage folks to pick it up and read it. Well, there's an extraordinary cast of characters of private envoys who were sent back and forth by one side or the other carrying messages. Uh, A female journalist in the 1960s, sort of the Barbara Walters of her day, named Lisa Howard, carried messages back and forth between the White House and Fidel Castro in both the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations. Uh, Then there was the CEO of Coca-Cola, J. Paul Austin, who was a close friend of President Carter, made three trips to Cuba. Uh, On two of them, he carried messages to Fidel Castro from President Carter. Um, The daughter of David Rockefeller, Peggy Delaney, carried a message from Cuba to uh, the Reagan administration about uh, the negotiations around Cuban withdrawal from Angola. So there's just this very colorful cast of characters. And I should mention, of course, Nobel Prize winning novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who uh, twice played a key role in carrying messages from Fidel Castro to uh, President Clinton. Any specifics to those messages that you can share? Well, in the case of Garcia Marquez, the first uh, message had to do with Castro's willingness to negotiate an end to the uh, the um, uh, rafters crisis, the migration crisis of 1994. And in the second case, 
he brought a, um, a message warning the United States of Cuban-American plots to blow up a civilian airliner um, and a proposal that Cuba and the United States co cooperate on counterterrorism uh, activities. Thank you so much, Bill Leogrand, the Associate Vice Provost at American University and the co-author of the new book, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse again. My pleasure. Includes our program with a special focus on Cuba. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx. Com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.